And joining me now to talk all things film is Fergal Casey. A very good morning to you, Fergal. Good morning, Patrick. How are you today? Oh, I'm okay. You know, the audience is always very curious about you. What was the routine this morning? Get up, make some Earl Grey, try and remember what film we're talking about. Yes, always rather helpful. Tell me this, do you, do you ever veer away from the Earl Grey? Uh, on a Sunday morning? No. So you, you do not veer away from Earl Grey? But it's a Sunday routine, you see. And you are a very routine person. Oh, yes. Piping hot tea fit for a prime minister on Sundays. Marvellous, marvellous. Now, I would hope you're dressed like a prime minister. Sadly, no. Although, perhaps, like David Cameron with his infamous penchant for relaxing. <laughs> well, you never failed to make us laugh, Fergal. Now, we are talking a great moment in film, and this morning's great moment in film is X4. X for X-Men. Which is a film that is 20 years old. 20 years old. Came out in August 2000. Now, can you just explain to the audience exactly who are the X-Men? Ah, the X-Men are basically a bunch of mutants uh, led by Professor X, Charles Xavier, who has an academy to keep them squirreled away from the rest of population and learn to control their terrible and terrifying abilities. He wants to live in peace with humanity, and his old chess-playing friend, now nemesis, Magneto, played by Ian McKellen, uh, does not. He thinks that they are better than Homo sapiens, and it's time for Homo superior to take over with the Brotherhood of Mutants. And what makes this a great moment in film? Well, without getting uh, hysterical about it, one could reasonably argue that X-Men is the most consequential movie of the 21st century. It's a rather bold statement to be making. One could argue. Not me, but one could argue. And what would be one's argument? Uh, One's argument would be to look at where the state of comic book movies lay at the end of the 1990s. Uh, Batman had just had... A, a terminal blow delivered with Batman and Robin, which was universally reviled. There hadn't been a Superman movie since 1987. It you know, seemed like the only viable thing out there was perhaps a different direction. Uh, Blade had done rather well. Spawn had got some esteem. Perhaps this is the way of the future, you know, a sort of uh, R-rated comic book heroes. And no... That's not the way things went at all, because X-Men came along. You know, I always think of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man in 2002 as being the film that brought comic books into a new direction, comic book films into a new direction. But Spider-Man came out in 2002, and this came out two years earlier, so you're quite right, it, it must have been this. I think this was what really gave everyone the... the kind of encouragement to really go for Spider-Man, you know, bigger budget, big razzmatazz, this can work, this can work. If X-Men works, this can work, because people know who Spider-Man is and they don't necessarily know who the X-Men are. So you would think that someone like Sam Raimi would have been looking at Brian Singer, who was the director, and saying, ah, so this is the direction we take this film in. Uh, I'm tempted to say not so much Raimi as the powers that be above Raimi, the producers, the studio executives. I mean... If you think about Batman and Robin in 1997, where you have such infamous things as the, what was it, the Bat credit card and the, uh, 
the nipples on the bat suit. And you're just kind of like, what in God's name is going on here? This is just, this is silly. Yes, it's silly. That's the word, silly. But I think that was deliberate. Oh, and it was I, totally deliberate, but yeah. it didn't work at all. But then you flash forward three years later, you know, you sit down, you're like, you're in a cinema going, okay, so what's this comic movie? Okay, Arbeit macht frei. Wait, is that Auschwitz? What the, why is this film starting in Auschwitz? You know, it's just, it's a different universe. I mean, it's a it's an incredibly bold move of singers saying, this is a serious film and the characters in it should be treated as if they were real people and they had real tragic backstories of real horror. And you're just kind of thinking, whoa, that's a, that's a much different way to go about this. It is interesting because... In 1992, when Tim Burton made Batman Returns, it was an excellent film, but I don't think it did as well as Warner Brothers had wanted it to do. So then Warner Brothers take the obvious approach of, well, maybe we need to make them lighter. Maybe we need to make them more fun, more accessible for a younger audience. And that's the direction they went. Now, you're quite right in saying that by doing that, they created something that wasn't very good. And they weren't very good at creating something that was fun, the way that something like Ant-Man or Deadpool has been funny and ironic and making fun of itself. But I think you're right that X-Men said, actually, you can make a serious film that has comic book characters, colourful comic book characters, present something very authentic and something realistic in a world that is anything but. And I would say, you know, that Sam Raimi is probably more of a comic book guy than Brian Singer was. So there's lots of shots in Spider-Man that you look at them and you go, that's a very comic book way of, of doing that shot. But that's how Sam Raimi has always worked. I mean, even from the start of the Evil Dead, you're like, that's a crazy angle, you know, that's a crazy angle, that's an eccentric way to shoot that. Wow, that's a really unusual thing. That is kind of Sam Raimi's perspective was always that sort of slightly wacky offbeat thing. And I think that he brought that to Spider-Man, but also Spider-Man was more serious than it probably would have been if X-Men hadn't come out first. The choice of Brian Singer, as you said, is an interesting choice because for me, the film that he would have done before this that would have brought him great acclaim was The Usual Suspects. So it must have been a move by the studio to present an action comic book film that was intelligent and using a very smart director to do that. I mean, one of the things was that the movie was in development hell from the mid-80s onwards. So, like, uh, Chris Claremont, uh, I think Stan Lee might have been there as well, they met James Cameron in the mid-80s around a time of Aliens. And sorry to cross you, Virgil, but Stan Lee is who, just to remind the audience? Stan Lee is the creator of nearly every comic book character in the Marvel Universe. Yes, and he came up with all the ideas, and then Steve Ditko and crew drew them all, but Stan Lee is very much responsible for the X-Men. Indeed, it's uh, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby drew and wrote the X-Men. Ah, so wait, Kirby was involved in the X-Men. Was Steve Ditko not involved? As far as I remember, Ditko was involved in Spider-Man, but Kirby was drawing the X-Men. Okay, okay, perfect. Right, so Stan Lee is involved in the pre-production of this film then? Well, you'd almost call it pre-pre-production. I mean, they, they had Cameron interested in Spider-Man and X-Men, but then script problems just became legendary. 
So people were cycling through this film at a rate of knots. So by the time that uh, Singer was attached after The Usual Suspects, there had been many directors had come and gone, but also the script had been worked on by, well, so much as there was a script, you have people you know, who had worked on it, including Michael Shea Bond, a novelist, Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist indeed. You had Andrew Kevin Walker, who wrote Seven, had had a bash at it. Christopher McQuarrie, who's Tom Cruise's uh, go-to guy now, had apparently done a lot of work. Joss Whedon did a, a funny joke uh, rewrite. Ed Solomon, was it, who, who worked in Men in Black, also had a go. I mean, it was an incredible uh, amount of script work. I mean, it was an incredible amount of script work, and God knows who wrote what. I mean, the arbitration process was something of a nightmare. Christopher McQuarrie just decided he didn't want to have anything more to do with this film. And so the guy who answered the phones in the office ended up getting the credit for it, which is still baffling uh, to everyone else because they're like looking and going, but this was the receptionist. Yeah, but he knew X-Men. He was sitting in the meetings. But why was the receptionist sitting in the meetings? Why was the receptionist sitting in the meetings when we had Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Michael Chabon and Buffy the Vampire Slayer creator Joss Whedon and Men in Black writer Solomon and and Christopher McQuarrie from Usual Suspects, and Andrew Kevin Walker, who wrote Seven, all writing on the script. Why is the receptionist in the meetings? And it was just that kind of chaotic situation. This is a film that started, and for three weeks of shooting, didn't have Wolverine. Now, who is Wolverine for those that have no knowledge of X-Men? The main X-Men, even though he's, he's kind of the, the most loosely affiliated of the group. The uh, rebel without a cause, the Clint Eastwood of this universe. It's all well and good getting a director, getting a script finally in place. But for that universe to become realistic, for us to believe in it, it must have a stellar cast. And it does. It has gravitas oozing out of it with Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen as the two leaders of the rival organisations. It was wonderful for Patrick Stewart because it was a chance to remove himself from the character of Jean-Luc Picard on Star Trek. Indeed it was. You know, uh, getting away from... Not quite typecasting, but just an albatross of a roll around your neck. Oh, look, it's Picard. I have done other things besides Picard. I was in I, Claudius, you know. And also Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Now, with this cast, Fergal, they obviously pull off a rather uh, good production. It is. It's, a, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those films where like, out of utter chaos comes a fairly you know, interesting story. Because what you have is sort of a mentorship between uh, Wolverine and Rogue, whose ability is quite terrifying, and Wolverine is there to kind of guide her through this, this sucking the life force out of other people that she has an unfortunate habit of doing when she touches them. And so they have just this, this nice emotional arc with the two of them amidst all the chaos and the, you know, Magneto throwing cars in the air with a flick of his wrist and... Professor X, you know, stopping people and turning around, taking over people's minds, and a huge pyrotechnical display at the end at the Statue of Liberty. And yet at the heart of it, it's all just sort of this, I wouldn't say it's, it's quite father-daughter, but there's definitely this sort of unusual bond between Wolverine and Rogue. Well, if I'm to get my head around this, the accessibility of the cast, because it is a well-known cast, the idea of bringing a director in who has focused on award-winning films, it really must make it very accessible 
for somebody who wouldn't normally watch comic book movies? I would say so. I mean, I would say that this this sort of makes people who don't watch comic book, uh, oh, people who don't read comic books go to watch comic book film, simply because it's the big new thing that's out in the cinema this week, and they go, okay, let's go see that. And it doesn't have anything like, oh, this is a niche interest, I'm not going to see that. Right, well, what we shall do is we shall take some music then from this film, X-Men. It is from Michael Kamen, he of, as I said to you earlier, Fergal, Pink Floyd fame, The Wall, and also The Final Cut. And when we come back, why don't we have a little go at, because you mentioned his name, the Patrick Stewart quiz. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Well, I'm talking film with Fergal Casey this morning, another great moment in film, and this morning it is X for X-Men. And, well, since Patrick Stewart is in X-Men, I thought, after last week's rather questionable display, I thought we would test Fergal Casey's knowledge and this week have a Patrick Stewart quiz. Fergal, did you use the last couple of minutes to brush up on your Patrick Stewart knowledge? No, I, I would say I just more had a meltdown of total nervousness. Do you know I think you're going to be okay this week? Mm, we shall see. And so, ladies and gentlemen, for I suspect the only time ever, the Patrick Stewart quiz. Get off my bridge! Would you mind identifying what you are? My name is Patrick Doyle. May I proceed? Proceed. Thank you. On screen. No, 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 I beg your pardon. You can't see anything. This is all theatre of the mind. This is all radio. Don't let them touch you! I most certainly will not. Right, are we ready to go? Red alert! All hands to battle stations! I suppose you could say that. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, the Patrick Stewart quiz. Get off my bridge! And as ever, our contestant is the one, the only, Mr. Fergal Casey. Fergal, you must be feeling relatively confident about this one. Oh no, not at all. But I would imagine you have some Patrick Stewart trivia floating in your head. I, uh, I would imagine, but after last week, I'm still shaking. Well, you must not be in the past, good sir. Now, question number one. Patrick Stewart was born on the 13th of July of what year? Oh, 1940. Are you sure? Yes. Well done. Yes, that's exactly right. You see, nothing to be worried about. Question number two. True or false, Patrick Stewart also trained as a boxer. False. Are you sure? No, but I'm going to go with it anyway. Oh, Fergal, goodness sake. Well, he was a newspaper boy. No, trained as a boxer, as well as training as an actor. Now, question number three. In January of 1967, he made his television appearance, his debut television appearance, on Coronation Street as what character? The Milkman. Final answer? Yes. Oh, goodness me, it was a fire officer. I'm shocked that you don't have any 1960s Coronation Street knowledge swimming around your head. Make it a point not to know anything about Coronation Street in any decade. (laughs) Now, as to our next question. 
In 2005, Patrick Stewart played what other famous captain? Oh, Ahab. Final answer? Yes. Goodness oh, me. It was Nemo, wasn't it? It was Captain Nemo, yes. Has he also played Ahab at some point? He may have. Yes, he may have. But he played this in a two-part adaptation of The Mysterious Island. Now, the very final question on the Patrick Stewart quiz. Patrick Stewart has admitted that he would, if he could, trade places with who and what would the job be that that person does that he himself would love to do? Editor of The Guardian. I'm afraid that's the wrong answer. Good guess, but no, he said he would like to be a concert pianist and he'd rather be Emmanuel Axe than anyone else. The famous American classical pianist. So I'm afraid all in all, that was really rather... Oh, I am disappointed, Fergal. I am disappointed. You didn't do very well at all. You only got one correct in this week's Patrick Stewart quiz. Yes, that was a short, sharp shock, as Gilbert and Sullivan would say. Oh, really? Mr. Wolf, do you know Gilbert and Sullivan? Well, I had to give it to you just because you did so poorly. I don't wish you to go home completely empty-handed. Well, Fergal, there shall be another quiz next week. I do hope we do a little bit better than that, but all in all, thank you very much for contributing this morning, and most certainly I imagine there are people listening who will who will go and take a look and venture into the world of Brian Singer's X-Men. You are to have a lovely Sunday, and thank you very much, as always. Good morning, Patrick.